Welcome back to the Life in Bomb City podcast. My name is Aaron Faber. Dr. Beth Rodriguez. <laughs> we are coming to you here live from the Panhandle PBS FM 90 studios on the Amarillo College campus, social and behavioral sciences. We're back again. I'm excited that we're, I really am. I know I said this last time, but it's just good to be back in here. Oh, certainly. It's always good to be able to visit and have a good conversation uh, with my wonderful colleague and you know, we have these conversations every single day. Absolutely. Yes. And that's what we figured, you know, we do have really good, intense conversations that we've had, not only with just us, but anybody in our department. And we thought, you know, this might be something that we should, you know, continue to discuss with other people as well. And um, so this isn't, it's not like we just randomly come in here and say, oh, well, we have these new discussions. We've been talking about pretty much all these topics before we actually come in and do anything with them. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's fun to actually get it and to help, you know, get it out there so other people can hear and listen to. Right. And, and they, they tend to have to be like extensions of things that we talk about in class. And because we have an hour and 15 minutes in class and we do eight weeks in accelerated format, we, uh, there's always something it, it seems that is kind of left hanging and we're cut off in mid sentence. Uh, it particularly, especially for me, I know that I, I just missed a class at one forty-seven the other day and I looked at the clock and I thought, oh, sorry guys. Yeah. <laughs> y'all have got to go. Yeah. I got to let y'all go. So they all go to work and they have, uh, responsibilities that are sometimes beyond my ability to fully understand, yeah. uh, with, uh, what they do and what they have going on in their lives. And, uh, I just love our students to death. Yes, me too. I'm excited to have them back in the classroom. Oh man, I cannot wait yes. to get to see them, look at them, see their, see the, the expressions on their face. They yeah, can just smile, laugh together. Cry right, together, more of that discussion it. instead of just the, I feel like I'm just talking at them at this. I mean, there's some discussion, but not near what you have person to person. So no, no. I'm excited. And okay, so what are we talking about today? Uh, well, today we are going to be visiting about a topic that I think we can conclude is probably a fairly uh, controversial topic. That might be the understatement of the year. <laughs> However, I think that it's important for uh, people to know that that we are having this conversation and we don't want to hide from it. We want to walk into it uh, with eyes open uh, with what is the what is the statement that they use in in uh, Friday Night Lights with uh, open eyes and full hearts. Yes, that's right. And and that to me is, is something that we can learn from. This is something that has pushed me and driven me into a position where I'm just reading, mm-hmm. uh, not, uh, not emphatically about all history, but certainly about the topic of, uh, of the day, which is anti-racism. And uh, I love how you do anti-racism because I mean, it really is. And that's, it's kind of, um, that's the point is, you know, a lot of people don't want to talk about it because it is kind of like a anti-racism. And um, and I, I wish it wasn't that way. And what's crazy is I don't know that. I mean, I've had these discussions before, but now they've taken on a different intensity than they ever have because of all this stuff that's going on and, you know, all, all across the world. But my biggest thing is, is when I'm, I've talked to my kids, I talk, we talk, I mean, this is, I was talking to my husband this morning and, um, one of the things that he really did bring up is like, this is not new. This is not new. This has been around forever. And it's not, you know, it's not like, it's not going to be solved in an afternoon. It's not going to, um, it's not, you know, all of a sudden a problem. Like it's always been an issue and there's always going to be people, which is really sad, but it's true. There's always going to be people who are on the extremes of every side of every issue. And that's why there are things that we are, we're worried and we get um, caught up talking about it because there's always going to be different sides on this one. Right. And, and which is kind of different to me because I've never really thought that, people around me, I haven't really been like, oh, they are definite racist. Um, I've never thought of, you know, a certain group saying, oh, just because you are who you are, you are racist. Um, Now, of course, I guess if there is a definite racist group, then yeah, they're going to be the racist group because that's how they identify on purpose. But I think people in general, 
aren't out there maliciously evil. And right. I don't know, is that a fallacy of mine? I, well, I think that, I mean, it deserves conversation, right? I mean, especially in reference to anti-racism as, a, as an idea and as, a, as, a, as an ongoing conversation in America. I mean, I think you and I can both get on the same board as well as I think probably almost everybody else. I think we have policies set up in places like Germany, for example, that do not want the swastika flown. And I can understand why right. they don't want the swastika flown because it is a remnant of a time long past and that cost 50 to 70 million people their lives. It was an ideology and it was an ideological conflict that took place in the 20th century. And it's something they're embarrassed by. And I am, uh, we, we have family members that went over to Europe and gave their lives and gave a part of themselves that they can they could have never gotten back mm-hmm. uh, because of what they saw and what they went through and it was a traumatized generation now they were tough but i'm just i'm going to get caught up thinking about the world war ii aspect yeah. i don't want to though that's not the point the point is to apply the lessons that we learn historically and understand them in the present as we're moving forward creating new things and um, trying to understand other people. So in my world with, uh, with government in Texas and government in uh, the United States of America, at the federal level and at the state level and at the policy level, uh, I am, I'm always thinking about, and, and Dr. Decker was getting on to me about this uh, yesterday. She gave me a special task. Oh, she did. We, we could talk about it. <laughs> because I love that. part of my, con- my, my personality tends to, tends to look at um, the, all the ways that things can come back to get you yeah. a little bit later. And um, I don't really know where that comes from. It's just, you know. It's policy, just, it it's sounds poli- like it. Yeah, maybe it's policy oriented, yeah. <laughs> And, um, and I think that that's what you learn. So finding out what assumptions people have about their world, particularly their worldview, what worldview assumptions are mm-hmm. people having? Because ever, we all have assumptions. I mean, sure. I grew up in a small town. That gives me certain um, inclinations to believe certain precepts about other people. And that, drive, that can help drive my behavior. Is that right? Sure, absolutely. I mean, that's what, that's what an attitude, that's the whole purpose of your attitude, right? Of your evaluation of something is to drive your behavior. And um, sometimes, you know, no, no fault of your own, just through experience, you don't have the knowledge, you don't have the experience, you don't have a well-known evaluation of something. So therefore, the behavior that follows is kind of, uh, you know, it's not necessarily a conscious, full-on whatever behavior you would want to engage in. So sometimes you just respond. Um, We talk about, I mean, saying that, like the idea of stereotypes. We function on um, stereotypes because it's a a cognitive shortcut. It's easier. Our brains, our bodies are like the most efficient machines in the whole world. Like they do not want to have to do extra work if they don't have to. So if we have an automatic stereotype that we can go to that's a cognitive shortcut, it's easier. Right. And that makes sense. And it is. And that's, you know, everybody does it. And you can't say, oh, nope, I don't, you do. And it's okay because that's how your body works. It's just that what you have to now be aware of that. And if your action is really, you know, hurting somebody, then that's when you change it. Okay. And my biggest thing is huge is that if you are doing something and it hurts somebody and they don't tell you, then you can't, I mean, how are you held responsible for that? Uh, how am I supposed to know how you're feeling if you don't talk to me. And I think a lot of this, a lot of this whole idea of anti-racism really does come down to communication and understanding and experience. And um, I don't think there is one group of people who needs to teach another group of people anything. I think that everybody needs to experience things together because it doesn't matter, like especially with age, it doesn't matter. there's young people who've had a lot more experiences with different things than people who are older, but there's a lot of times there's a lot of older people who have had experienced as well. So I think it's a learning environment. There's no teacher student. I think it is a cooperative, Hey, let's figure this out instead of having one versus the other. I just, I, that's my biggest thing. And that's what I see a lot of times sometimes. Well, not a lot of times. 
I'll say, because that didn't make any sense what I just said. It was like the most contradictory. A lot of times, sometimes, um, I see that, you know, it seems anytime we talk about this, there's a polarization. You have extremes with the whole anti-racism movement. And I think that when we look at the extremes, people get so angry. Because, yeah, extreme, anything on the extreme is always like, There's no cooperation. There's no um, working together in those extremes because you are in the extreme. Like you 100% agree, disagree with something that somebody else 100% agrees with. And so with those extremes, it causes lots of tension. And, you know, and I'm not saying that someone needs to give in. It's just that maybe it's the extreme people who were not going to be able to bring to a consensus, if that makes any sense. No, I, I think it does. And and those assumptions that we were mentioning a moment ago uh, help drive our expectations out of a conversation. They help drive our expectations out of policymaking. They help drive our expectations out of what we consider to be safe in a classroom. Uh, to talk about what is safe ground in a classroom whenever when when the actual structure of the class itself is being rocked at the bottom, mm-hmm. at the foundation of it. And what do I mean by that? Well, we have a certain list of assumptions I'd like to just kind of throw out there and, and visit about. Uh, the term anti-racism is, uh, is a term that has been largely attributed to the work of Ibram Kendi, uh, Dr. Kendi, in, um, I believe he came out of Harvard, uh, sure. PhD from Harvard. Uh, I'll find out. I want to make sure. But uh, I, I have read his book, and, and if you haven't read it and, and you're, you're uh, afraid to read it or you don't want to read it, I suggest you read it because it is very well written and it is hard to read. As a, as a white man, it's hard to read. And I can say that with, with all the, all the confidence in the world. I just don't want uh, anybody to uh, to make a mistake about that. Real quick, he went to um, Temple University. Oh yeah, Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. So that's uh, hey, we have Dr. Key. He went yeah, to Philadelphia. <laughs> I wonder if they. Ever. I doubt it. No, I think okay. they're a little There's an age, <laughs> age difference. difference. <laughs> I mean, he's, if he listens to this, he's going to be really, he's, he's going to be like, okay, thanks guys. Yeah, thanks for <laughs> throwing me under the bus. But um, I did, he did, um, I think the reason you did thank Harvard is he did a lot of the um, research That's and right. stuff that That's was right. um, right. printed Harvard. Like yeah, and we just did that. We just now did the Harvard course. Yeah. And uh, they were mentioning, uh, they, they mentioned their friendship with him regularly. Uh, but he is at Boston College. Yeah, he's at, and, he actually has a center uh-huh, for yeah. anti-racism at Boston College. Now. And which I really want to visit. Yeah, I would love to visit. I would actually love to sit down and visit with him about whether or not that was the intention from yeah. the from the outset, whether or not it was the intention to uh, to ch- to make these challenges. I would just like to run through some key okay, assumptions yeah. that are a part of this uh, a part of of <clears throat> the worldview uh, that is here. So. Um, the whole worldview comes out of looking at the world through race and only through race. That's the predominant um, assumption about people is that we are driven by this underlying concept that we may, may, may or may not be aware of that is part of a construction of the world around us. That race is socially constructed. The term, the idea, the way it's practiced is part of our social thought and our relationships. It's normal, it's ordinary, and ingrained into society, and it makes it very difficult to recognize. Um, that the ideas, the traditional claims of neutrality, objectivity, and colorblindness need to be contested in order to reveal any of the self-interests of the dominant groups. The social interest or social justice platforms and practices are the only way to eliminate racism, and other forms of oppression and injustice, and that the experiential knowledge of communities of colors or their unique voice is valid, legitimate, and critical toward understanding the persistence of racial inequality, um, that communi- communities of color are differently, differentially racialized depending on the interests of the dominant group, and history and historical context must be taken into consideration in order to challenge policies and practices that affect people in color. 
The ideological contestation, deconstruction, and reconstruction of race is often demonstrated through storytelling and counter-narratives. That is a lot to digest. Mm -hmm. And so you can imagine, hopefully our listeners can imagine how much there is to talk about. We are not going to be able to get to all of this today. Just it's impossible, but we can talk about some of the, the basic things that I think that we can help try to explain and hopefully... Um, hopefully digest with alongside you. Yeah. And I mean, that's, I think the biggest thing is to start a conversation and, you know, not, you know, again, like the idea that, okay, I'm listening and I'm willing to learn, but you also have to listen to me and you have to be willing to learn as well. So, I mean, it's not a, it's not a you against me kind of situation because when that happens, right, we don't have no one's going to be talking. It's going to be a lot of disagreement and, you know, on each other's face. And that's not what we're trying to do. What we're trying to do is just bring up the conversation. Okay, so the first thing that um, I think is really important is we have to define race. Like, what what is racism? And um, it's it's been a very interesting journey that we've been on talking about this because, um, to me, from the very beginning, when I, you know, from a kid, the idea of racism was if you treat somebody different because of the color of their skin, that was considered racism. It wasn't didn't have anything to do with anything else other than if I decide that you're going to be a certain way or I'm going to treat you a certain way just because of the way you look, pretty much, then that's racism. Um, right. That's and that's what and that's how I still function because that's how I that's what I think, um, but. That's not necessarily the definition anymore, right? I mean, th- I, that's what I've learned is that through c- talking with people, um, and I'm like, I don't, like, racism is bad. <laughs> and I don't think that any group, I don't, I don't think any group, because of what group they're in, is just automatically racist. I don't think that happens. I don't think that just because you are born a white male, a white female, a black male, a black female, an Asian male, Asian female, a Hispanic or Latino, whatever. I do, you know, I do not think that that means that you are just because of who you, your color skin, that you are racist. That doesn't happen. Can I, can I give the counter argument to that? Yes, please. Okay. This is the counter argument that I've learned about it. And I'm gonna, I, <clears throat> I want to give a shout out real quick um, to Dr. Lowry Hart. And I mean it. I, I would never have thought about a lot of these ideas. And it's, it's interesting because so many of the ideas that we've been, uh, it's been a challenge. Absolutely. It's been a good intellectual challenge mm-hmm. and it continues to be, and it will continue to be. I have Absolutely. no doubt about it. Uh, but it has been a very, very good thing for uh, maybe for my soul to be able to digest and work through, uh, particularly uh, the, the, the discernment. Right. Right, and that's what this seems to be about is discernment. Um, so, what, what I, I would say that individuals uh, supporting the anti-racism uh, base would say that uh, the the definition of racism as being uh, one person looking at, let's say, a white male looking at a female and saying, "Well, that's the weaker sex." Or looking at a, um, a that would be sexism, right? Um, and looking at or looking at a white male looking at a black male and saying that is a and and forgive me, but we're we're using historical uh, terms here. Uh, looking at white males and saying, "Hey, boy," right? We don't want to elevate the status of that human being to the level of man. And so the term racism itself is a term coined by um, individuals in the, uh, in the racist establishment to help prop up the system itself so that it doesn't look racist. And we don't challenge the system as being racist, but rather we look at people as being racist. And if it's only individual people that are c- capable of being racism and the system is not capable of being racism or racist, then we are constantly discriminating without even knowing it. Right. That's my understanding of the counter argument as it's been 
proposed and the way that I'm trying to digest it in whole. Uh, and and of course, we brought this up too with our with our uh, Harvard uh, profs whenever we were uh, going through that class. Um, I stayed afterwards for a couple of minutes and and, and spoke with one of the the guys that uh, was at UT Austin, by the way, hook them horns. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> he, uh, he was, he was very, very kind and very nice and very generous and grace, uh, grace, gracious to give a portion of his time uh, to answer this basic question, which was, you know, about the definition. And I brought up the Merriam Webster definition. Don't do this. Um, to anybody. They to anybody. This is super controversial but- and it shouldn't be. Merriam-Webster is the dictionary I go to when I'm looking up just about anything. And so whenever, when, when folks are looking for the definition of racism, why is the term racism such a loaded word as a, uh, as a definition, just a definition? I understand all of that. I can understand why the term racism is a very difficult concept. Absolutely. Experiences, everything, but the definition, that's what, I mean, we talked about this over and over. Um, We actually, before we even got on here, we were talking about this. And the idea is if we don't have a same definition, a stable, consistent definition that we are working through together to talk about something, we're not going to be able to really talk about it it's still going to be a lot of misunderstanding. Aaron brought up a great um, example. Like if we, if he was like, if my wife and I had a different concept, a different definition of marriage, it would make no sense for me to, and her to get married because our conversation about what it means is completely different. Like we had to have that understanding of what it means, the commitment, everything that goes into it before we would both understand and be able to even communicate about it. And I'm 100% on board with that. And so when and if anybody has a conversation about racism and, you know, you tell I was I'm, you know, open to tell everybody my definition of racism is if you treat somebody different because of their race. Right. That is racism to me. And I will tell anybody I've had many conversations and I tell them that and then they come back and say, well, my definition is different. You can't just look in the dictionary. And it's like, then where do I look? I don't understand. And if it's different for every single individual, the idea of what their definition of racism is, there's not going to be any understanding. And so it can't be an individual definition. Now it can be an individual experience. Absolutely. And it will be different for every single person. The one thing it cannot be different is the definition because then we have no understanding, right? We have to know exactly what it is we're talking about. Right. And once we know that, then we can start, you know, really understanding something. But if it's going to change person to person to person, then that's not really the definition. That's just your experience with it. And yes, that will be different from person to person to person. Hmm. That's such a, that's such an interesting thing. And it, it does a good job of of relaying that, uh, yeah, that was an example that we used, uh, being able to define marriage, what it means, because it helps us with our expectations. So, you know, if, well, I think we spent an entire weekend, you know, we're Catholic, so we, they, they put us through the ringer. You know, um, the diocese has different expectations, and Kelly and I did, we did so much more than what was required and not because we're overachievers. We just wanted to spend, we wanted an excuse to spend more time together. <laughs> so I said, you know, whatever allows us to spend more time together and talk to more married couples, I am happy to do that because I probably need it. I've been, you know, I'd been, my definition was probably not on the same page, not because I was a bad person or anything. It's just my life experience up till that point was I had only knew what it was like to be a, a single uh, a single man, you know, and a, a bachelor, you know, so not the bachelor, by the way, not on, <laughs> never, never was. He that. was giving out a couple of roses. Right, right. <laughs> um, so uh, anyway, us being able to spend that time was some of the best time that we had. And I still think back on it because it helped us lay a foundation for how we should expect to have conversations and have conflict. When we had conflict, we had a common language to come back to that we both believed in 
And if we, if our experiences taught us that that definition was different, then we had to do that, but we had to do it together and we had to figure it out together. So making demands as uh, was done with Merriam Webster um, about the definition of racism being changed, demanding them or canceling them or trying to cancel the dictionary, if that's even possible. Um, oh, don't tempt it, people. It is possible, is the thing. So Merriam-Webster, though, being the academic, you know, um, go-to for words, needed to change a subset or a subcategory of its definition in and, order to and one thing I want preserve to it. Make sure you uh, still though the first the definition is, and then it's one a what you know, and but that happens with all sorts of words. So, I mean, yes, they can change, but the fundamental definition has not changed. And, but culture experience sometimes ch- alters another possible explanation. So our definition, and therefore that's, I just make sure that that's, no, that's in there. That's right. It's important uh, to recognize that the, the, they never changed the, the, the core definition. And then once again, that's not that's not an that's not an attempt to you know to get people to you know light a fire and go and <laughs> go go get that definition changed. No, that's not what we're doing. the The definition in Merriam-Webster is a belief that race is a fundamental determinant of human traits and capacities, and that racial differences produce an inherent superiority of a particular race. And that is something that I believe Beth just said. Mm-hmm. That that was her definition of racism. That's how I brought, was brought up to be to believe about people as well. That you know, being rich or poor, if I believe that I am a um, uh, a rich person and I pass somebody on the road that is poor, and I believe that I am inherently superior to that person for the simple fact that I have more money, that's a wrong idea of human beings. Right. And if likewise, if I am a poor person looking at a wealthy person. And I am perhaps envious or I am perhaps looking at the success Mm -hmm. that they have uh, at a fiscal level, right? These people may be very unhappy. Uh, But if I look at them and and say "There's uh, there's a me and a them and they are wrong just because they're, they have more money than I do. Yeah. And you don't even know them. Don't know them. You have no idea what they've been through. You don't, you don't know how much they've worked. You don't know where they started from. You don't know the experiences. You don't know the background. You don't know. And that's the thing. It's like you, you know, even if I was told, I know it was another thing that somebody brought up and they said, well, you know, how can, and the question was, and it was at this, I'm telling this because we have a group of authors that are, that wrote a book and it was, it's a, it's a very interesting read. And, um, a, a thing was brought up, the question was brought up, and one of the authors was speaking about it, and he said, um, how can I, as a white, he's a white man, how can I, as a white man, be held responsible what was done in my history? And he said, we are part of our history, just like if you went to the doctor for medical things. And it's like, you have to tell your history because it is part of who you are now. Yes, I get that. However, you don't know everybody's history. So just because now you see somebody who looks white, okay, so I don't know if you guys, I probably, I don't know if I'm there, I have some of my students are on here. And even though it is Dr. Rodriguez, I am, I'm blonde hair, blue eyes. I married, my husband is Hispanic and um, I, I'm, I, I'm white. I look white. However, um, I'm actually Osage Indian. I am an eighth Indian. And, um, you know, if you were to just look at me, you wouldn't know that. However, if we are really pushing this idea that we have to look at your past and not just what you look like now, then we are going to have to open up a whole new thing. And there are so many people that will not be in your, the category that, you know, you're, you're just racist because the people before you were right. Because that's not how it works. Um, I had, I have a great classes. I have the best classes and I had the most amazing student. I won't give her name, but have, she was talking 
um, we do this little thing in my lifespan where they talk about their life and, you know, things that have really changed them. And she said, you know, um, I'm just confused about so many things. She goes, because I am a little bit of everything. She's like, my grandma, my grandpa's German. My mom is Hispanic. My, uh, no, my dad is Hispanic. Sorry. My mom is Persian. My, I mean, she is everything. And she's like, I'm just a melting pot. She's like, so therefore, you know, when people talk about racism, I'm, you know, the truth is, is if we just looked at, oh, the German part. Yeah. Then if that's the way we're going, then she's automatically racist because that's what the history of was. She is nothing like that because she is her own individual. And I'm, I don't know where this whole idea of collective, the collectivist idea has really come from. Um, it used to not be here. We were used, we were very much this idea that we are individuals and you have your own individual uniqueness, which makes you, you, which makes your experiences and everything valid. For some reason, in the last couple of years, we have really been switching now to this idea of this collectivist. Just because you have one trait as somebody else in the group, you are now part of that group and you are responsible for things that happen within that group. And I don't know where that came from. Well, part of the, part of the analogy that you just gave um, about that, that we heard from our authors um, about language, for, language of healing is a question of uh, patient and doctor, right? Well, we know who the patient is in that, in that analysis or in that analogy, right? Who is the doctor? That's what I want to know. Yeah. Who is the doctor? Um, and that's an important thing because the doctor is, it needs to be somebody who is highly, you know, knowledgeable about determining and being able to discern what matters about that uh, hereditary, those hereditary traits and what puts you at risk, but doesn't necessarily mean that it is going to happen. Right. If you have cancer in your family does not mean you have cancer right now. Right. It does survive as an analogy because I understand it helps people understand the idea of, you know, things and how they pass on, how ideas get passed on. But I still uh, question who is the doctor? If Absolutely. the doctor is a um, homogenous collective idea and that judges me based on the color of my skin, I will say that is not correct. I will not go to that doctor. No. And you know what? And I just love that you even said who's a doctor, because if we look at the doctor, he's there to make it better, right? He, that's his job. And so if it is not, then that's not a doctor and they don't need to know your history because they're not, they're judging you on the history instead of using that to understand where you're coming from. Right. Yeah. And I think that to some degree, we you and I have have visited at, probably ad nauseum about, uh, well, I can't believe we're, we're already 33 minutes in. Can you believe that, Beth? No, We have to be careful at, at an hour. We have to be careful because- uh, we'll, <laughs> Y'all are going to stop listening. <laughs> well, they'll get off their treadmills. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so uh, this is an example. Michelle Alexander, um, uh, critic of the criminal justice system uh, from, she wrote, um, what is that? her classic uh, work? Her classic work is- um, ah. Oh, well, we'll, we'll come back to it on another day because Michelle Alexander definitely deserves our attention. She brought to the forum a couple of uh, other ideas. I didn't bring my books with me, uh, so I am kind of underprepared. But anyway, uh, she writes, though, that the war on drugs um, cloaked in race-neutral language. Uh, let's see. Uh, the New Jim Crow. This is what she wrote, uh, and, and that's basically the imprisonment of um, African-American males. And by the way, even the term African-American, I have to, I mean, I have to put this out there, that the, Af the term African-American, um, if you're talking to someone um, of color who does not want to identify as African-American, but rather as black, a black person, which, I mean, makes all the sense in the world, uh, as a definition, as a, as a self, I guess, a self-identity, uh, then, I mean, even that can be controversial. So getting, and that differs from person to person. 
mm-hmm. because it, it can be considered a microaggression. Yes, that's what I was about to say, is the idea of a microaggression. And I'm sure that you guys, tons of people have heard about it because it is the, um, I don't know, hot topic, I guess, sure. um, where we're talking about microaggressions. And um, it's really interesting how that is put out there. Um Okay, I can, I'm going to give the example of what happened with me in a conversation. You were there, and um, someone told me that if they were to call me a stupid white Karen, it was not racist because I am, as a white person, I have more power. And I was like, what? I was like, That's, that is racist because as soon as you introduce any race – that's when it becomes racism. Um, and not if you go by the other definition. And exactly. That's, and that's and the point. Yes. If somebody is coming from that other definition, that is not a racist statement, but rather just a statement of truth. It's a statement of fact that white people have been the dominant race, once again, coming from the race worldview, the worldview that race dominates everything. That race is, in fact, the going to be something that if you are um, in a minority class, um, of people, and we could get into talking about classism and you know Marxism and neo-Marxism, classism, and, um, yeah, a caste system. We could get into talking about all of those different things, and that's a very rich, deep conversation to have. And I would absolutely welcome um, that type of conversation on this podcast. I think Beth would would as well, and yeah. and we uh, would welcome anybody that is uh, ready to have polite, civil discourse over yeah. it. Um, onto our podcast because we want to talk about it. Um, but anyway, that, uh, that particular, uh, mindset is not racist. If you're talking to someone that is in a superior category in the worldview from, from race, if that, if they believe that the system is racist and they are being oppressed. So you have, the world is quite simply broken up into oppressor and oppressed. Right. And of course that is, so when I, again, I just, I, I understand what they're thinking. I just do not see that. I think that once, um, once that is the fact that that you just said that I'm, you know, if they said, well, it's not racist, it's racist if you said it, but not if I did. Um, I think that, you know, a lot of times they're like, oh, well, it's because you have the power. Well, who just gave it to me? Like, I didn't, I didn't have it before. I'm not you know, putting that on you. I'm not, there's nothing that I'm doing that says, oh, you know what? I'm superior to you because I don't think that I am. Um, but as soon as you tell me you are now the oppressor because you have more power than me, well, you gave it to me. So if, if that's how you see it, then it's because you have decided that I, cause that's not how I feel. And I don't know when that comes into play. Cause it is very individual thing. I'm like, I'm not walking around like, oh, I've got the power. And if I did, which I don't, I think that even my students, like, I don't see me as, oh, they're, you know, the person over them. I hold, I don't, I, everybody, like, even when I talk about their grades, I don't give you a grade. You earn it. Hmm. You earn that grade. So if I had the power to give you a grade, it's a different, and I don't feel like I do. I don't. You have the power to earn your grade. So I think that when we, you know, when we really look at it that way, it is not an uneven thing. That is something that somebody else is artificially putting in, in my point of view. Wow. That's, uh, I mean, okay. So Beth, you're saying that when we earn something rather than when we're given something, that it changes the whole perspective of power because it puts the onus onto the, the individual and takes it off of the collective. Um, so I, let me go back real quick to Michelle Alexander. Sure, yeah. the, the idea that war on drugs, the war on drugs itself was meant to be, maybe not even meant to be, but when it was, when it was, when it became the war on drugs, it was the outcome of it because the system itself is racist. Okay. That the outcome of the war on drugs was bound to affect the, a minor, class of minorities, right, of minority groups, whether that be um, black people or it be uh, 
people of any people of color, including indigenous, which is BIPOC, a, uh, a black indigenous uh, people of color, which is a acronym that we've uh, become more and more familiar with. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, that the whole war on drugs is cloaked in race neutral language. This is from the Merriam-Webster di- dictionary that was, has been revised right um, in the racism category. So it offered whites opposed to racial reform a unique opportunity to express their hostility toward blacks and black progress without being exposed to the charge of racism. And we call this coding, right? The ability to to talk about um, people and talk about institutions and do it um, uh, from a perspective of uh, both the individual and the collective. And if we look at it from a social, economic, and political advantage, maybe, you know, I don't know. I think that it's kind of a weird, this is such a, a difficult topic. It's, a, it's, a, it's so complex mm-hmm. with so many roots that uh, we, could spend, we could spend 50 podcasts talking about it. Uh, first of all, I love that about it. Yeah. You know, the complexity, I think <laughs> sure. you do too. Because it really gets us into this conversation about Society, policy, individual, um, uh, what, how we're brought up. Mm-hmm. It's essentially a, I mean, an amalgam of just everything yes. that we have ever experienced as people and as a society, both individually and collectively. Sure. I mean, it is. It talks about, I mean, this whole idea is you just brought up what, uh, it's called Bruff and Burner's um, systems. And, you know, you have your micro, your meso, your exo, and then the macro system. And it's, I mean, and it just shows how in each of those systems, you know, your immediate family, your biology, the person, the individual, and their own experiences within that make you who you are make you, you know, what you're, how you're going to develop for the rest of your life. But it's not just that. It's also the mesosystem, the bigger constructs, the things that you're involved with, but maybe not even, you know, directly, such as maybe your parents' job or even your parents' uh, marriage. Those things, if something happens there, they get a promotion. Does it affect your development? Absolutely. Okay, even the way that they were raised as kids, Okay, it's this is what we do. We see it as parents. I know that so many times people are like, oh, I'll never be like my parents. 90% of the time you end up being exactly like your parents um, because True. that's how you were raised. So, um, and that's what we see. So even though it may not be the immediate, you know, parent-kid relationship there, it could be two generations back, the way things were are the way things are now, which now affect your development that um, your expectations, your motivation, your um, whatever else to get through the full development, right? Um, I was really lucky. I, I didn't know, and this is really a kind of giggle now, but I didn't know that you could not go to, you had a choice to not go to college. I thought that it was just like everything else to education. You go to first, second, third, fourth, you graduate high school, you go to college. Because that is just the way that my parents were. And, um, you know, I hear people, oh, I took a year off. And I was like, oh, like, you're allowed to do that? I didn't even know. I didn't even know you could drop classes either. Right. <laughs> I didn't know. Um, but it was because, and everybody assumes, uh, in grad school, you know what? I applied for one, one grad school. That was it. Because I didn't know. I thought it was just like everything. Nobody else in my family had been to grad school. So they didn't know either. But now that we know through experience, guess what? When my kids go to grad school, I hope, we'll see. Um, you know, it'll be, I know better now. You know, I know what the expectations are. I have, because now I've experienced it. If you've never experienced it, you can't, you know, push people to the next level. And until that individual decides to. Okay, my parents never told me I have to go to grad school. I did my own research and realized if I'm getting my degree in psychology, I can do one of two things. I can do a job with my bachelor's that almost everybody else can do, or I can go ahead and get my master's. And when I got into the program, which I got into, uh, was at Texas Christian University, I um, realized that that program was a PhD program. And it was like, well, you know what? I'm going to go ahead and do this now and just go ahead and get done. Nobody told me to do that. And I think I really, and of course, you know, I've heard 
that the reason I could do that or did that was because I'm white. And I don't know that that is true. I don't, I don't believe that. I think I did it because that's my personality. Um, I did it because my parents always had these high expectations for me and kept pushing me to be better than I was before. And that is, I don't, I don't think it has to do with the race. I think it has to do with the individual. And I'm, I know people are going to disagree and that's okay. I'm great. That's what the point is, is I've had many conversations where people disagree with me and everybody's like, oh, and I'm like, you guys, this is the point. This is not something that's easy to talk about. So if you disagree, that's okay. And I'm not offended. What, what about when somebody comes and says, you know, that something is non-negotiable. Like if there are non-negotiables in a conversation, how does that influence and impact our conversations about race? Because that is something that gets brought up when we talk about racism, mm -hmm. is that the definition itself is non-negotiable, right? And what that means, I mean, from, from where we're, from what we're learning and what we've been doing and conducting our um, our analysis, I would say, of the topic, the examination. Um, everybody's coming, come in with their pre, with their pre, preconceptions, their um, own experiences, all those different things, and how we're taught. I think makes a big influence as well. What we're taught to say, how we're taught to say it, how we're taught to treat other people, mm -hmm. um, and and of course, we have formative times in our lives when that is more apparent than others, and. And I would argue we're always going to be learning. We're lifetime learners. Um, I definitely preach that to my son. Yeah. You know, you will always be, always be learning something new and keep your mind not, you know, I mean, have your beliefs, you know, and your principles, but always be ready to have them challenged, mm -hmm. you know, and, and that's okay. It's a good ability to be able to sit down with people that disagree how does it change that system though, where you can disagree, right? And what's interesting about this is that that collective, that collective um, definition, which is the systemic racist um, uh, precept to our conversation, changes the dynamic of being able to talk mm -hmm. because it takes the power away from individuals to even communicate and makes the definition itself non-negotiable. Right. Um, and you know what? I've thought a lot about that because, I mean, of course, I'm, <laughs> when we have these conversations, it, is, it usually starts with the individual. And, um, but, you know, they're like, okay, well, maybe it's possible that not every individual is racist, but the system is. And, um, you know, sometimes... I can, I understand where that concept comes from. Um, but the, I guess my, um, like the question I ask is, okay, if that's true, well, how are we going to fix it? If that is really the issue is that the system is what's causing the oppression, then tell me how to fix it because I'm, I don't, I'm not good at, I love to talk about things, but then it gets to a point where I'm like, okay, we're talking about it. Everybody's bitching about it. Let's fix it. Let's fix it now. If you don't have a way to fix it, then stop bitching about it. And I know that sounds really bad, but I'm, it's for real. Like it's stop, like quit yelling at people. Stop. You know, that's not fixing it. That's just causing people to have a bigger wedge between your ideology and what we're really trying to deal. If you really want to, you know, not have this systematic racism, let's fix it. You're, we're inviting people to the table for policy. Let's do it. Let's fix it. Instead of sitting around and constantly talking about, oh, yeah, this person's right. This person's right. This, okay, fix it fix the situation and let's do it. I'm, I'm down. Okay. Tell me like if it is in the, I mean, the, the reason we're saying that the systems are racist is because they were formed by white men because that's who was starting <laughs> the systems. Right. Um, but you know, I mean the colleges, the, the education, um, workforces, you know, a lot of it was started by white men. And that is what the systematic racism is coming from is that it is, it was made by 
Therefore, it favors, and that's why we need to change it. And my question is, is okay, that's great. So how are you going to change it? Like, what, what do we do? Like, what's going to make it less of a suppressive or oppressive system? Right. And, and this is not a new conversation. This is a very deep old conversation. And we have had this conversation in the country since its founding. Right. And at, there were times um, at the uh, Constitutional Convention in 19, in 19 in 1787 in which people thought the whole thing was going to break down over the issue of slavery. Mm-hmm. Because at that time, there were people that acknowledged the system itself in the South. And I mean, many people argue in the North as well, uh, was a systematically racist and structurally racist society. And it's easy to look back at 200 years at people that have been gone, passed away 200 years ago and say, I'm going to pass judgment on this entire generation of people. And I don't believe that. I just, I, I can't believe it. This is why, because in 200 years, there will be people looking at us and they will pass judgment on us over one issue. Mm-hmm. Now, the issue might be big. The issue might be cattle. Yeah. The issue might be uh, abortion. The issue might be genetic engineering. We don't know. It's very important to be a student of history and a student of life for this reason so that we can try to be right. But on the base that we don't know the future and we can't tell what people are going to uh, do or say in Nostradamus, right? right then... We don't know what we will be judged on, on the big issues. And in this case, it doesn't matter how good your life was or what you did throughout your life or what you taught your kids or how you maybe tried to improve their rotten life because you're going to be judged over one thing. Mm -hmm. And that one thing hopefully is not something that is going to condemn your entire generation, Mm -hmm. everybody, and group them into one category and say, that group was, that's, this is my issue. When we talk about the West, the West, right? The whole West, everybody in the West or everybody in the East, Mm -hmm. they don't all, and not everybody thinks uh, the same way. We have different constructions. Yes. I hate that. I still, it is, it is completely wrong. To ever have a, if you ever, students out there, if you're ever taking a test and they say all da da da, it's going to be false because not everything, it is not an absolute. There's no absolute on anything. I just, I know that that's something that everybody's learning, right? But you do, you learn that everything is relative. There's not, maybe there is a large quantity of people. There may be, you know, a high amount, but it is never all. Because that's what's what you're saying. It's we're, we're trying again this whole collectivist. And what's really even crazier is that we're trying to, you know, get away from the idea of being a stereotype and, oh, putting them. But that's exactly what we're doing. We're, we're actually putting people in boxes more now than we were five, ten years ago. Right? This um, We talk about, you know, each of the generations is more... Um, it's different and they're so much more open. And I, it's crazy because now I feel like people are putting, being put into boxes so much more now than they were when I was growing up. And maybe I'm just more aware of it now. I'm not sure exactly what it is. Um, but my kids, that's the difference is my kids are aware that they have, oh, well, this political party. Uh, then this means that everybody who is this is that. Hmm. And I think that is, that is just, and I tell them all the time, nope, that's not true. <laughs> do we you, don't know. Do you think that there is a, uh, a, a deeply rooted or even a root, um, maybe I shouldn't have just said deeply immediately, um, just a root in the number of people that continually feel more and more alienated, more and more marginalized, more and more disassociated with and unaffiliated with... Um, systems uh, that include religion, that include political parties, that include um, discussion. And that alienation itself can become a group 
unto mm-hmm. itself. And the disassociation and unaffiliation, the desire to not be a part of anything because you don't want to be judged for it, uh, can cause its own set of problems in a society. Well, I mean, it comes down to the the idea of the extremes again. Like, if you're not, I mean, there wasn't, you're allowed to not be 100% this you know you can like there you can dis you can agree with some things on one side and disagree with things on the same side and then you can agree with things that are completely on the other side because it's again it's not all or nothing there's and it's not black or white it is not it there is always Ride Somewhere or die, the, yeah. Vin Diesel. Gotta, <laughs> gotta throw the Fast and Furious out. It's not. I mean, right? It's there's always a little bit in the diff, in the middle, right? I, you're not one thing. You don't have to be one thing or the other. But passion breeds it. Sure. Which is why absolutely reason and principle. Reason and principle has to be matched with reason. I mean, with passion. I'm sorry. So passion, passion alone is so dangerous. Um, our, I, I would our framers knew this how dangerous passion was, how dangerous the will of the people could be, the will of the majority, because they're often wrong. And we've found this throughout history that, that in, uh, in certain situations when the people get too much power, and I don't mean this in, a, in an undemocratic way, understand, <laughs> please, and I don't mean the party Democrats. This is another thing about yes, language, right? Exactly. We have to... Please acknowledge that the term democracy is not a democratic word. And the term republicanism is not a Republican Party word. It is a phrase, a a term that we use to explain the types of some, some, I guess, some demarcations in the political boundaries of definitions. Mm -hmm. So democracy itself being the will of the people can be dangerous mob mentality it's what we talk about mob mentality yeah Uh, and i think that happens a lot with the extremes right you can even be someone who kind of is on one side and then you get in with people who are on the extreme because they're angry because somebody's been you know and then all of a sudden you are polarized because you have now you know agreed with something and then all of a sudden you and i think maybe sometimes it happens and people are like oh wait I didn't mean to be like, I don't, I'm not here. I'm not like full on extreme hate everybody because that's not usually where people are. In fact, most people are somewhere in the middle, Um, but there are, and those are the people who are the loudest. So when we see that, they're the people who post, they're the people who are in the media. Those are the people who are exciting. It's not the people who are in the middle are like, well, you know, sometimes this makes it, (laughs) nobody wants to listen to them. No. They want to listen to the people who are like, these are, I'm the bad, you know, screaming and yelling and the other side who's screaming and yelling because they have that full on passion and not as much reason. And I 100% agree with you that it has to be passion and reason is when you lose it, you do, you become this extreme and it's almost like you get lost in it. I feel like I know, and maybe I'm wrong. I don't know, no, but I feel yeah. like a lot of people do get lost in that whole mob mentality and the idea that I'm here on this side, so I'm now have to believe everything. You have to be a purist. Yes. Well, you have to be a purist, and you know everybody's yeah. guilty of this. The Tea Party in 2010, they were purists. They were a purist group of people that wanted exactly what they wanted, no conciliation whatsoever. However, what we found is that the the Tea Party has become a part of a larger group, you know, even the caucus itself realized in, in the, in the house of representatives that the caucus itself, uh, had to make some conciliations and otherwise it was not going to survive because they were just splintering the very ideas that they were, they were wanting, they were wanting to help out with. And I mean, yeah. nobody can get everything they want. Yeah. Uh, the Rolling Stones, right? Uh, no, you can't <laughs> always get what you want, but if you try sometimes. You'll and get what this you need. Is also, yeah, you get what you need. So also though, I mean, having been, having been uh, uh, a young person myself, the idea and concept of love, right? Passionate love is fantastic. Sure. It's great. It's great to have passion and love. However, it's also important, equally important, to be able to think mm-hmm. through it, right? Throughout it. Because passion 
alone is a fire. It is. It's beautiful, but it'll kill you. Yeah. And so anyway, that being said, we are obviously not using music. And (laughs) (laughs) some of there's a couple of reasons for that. But we are going to go ahead and wrap up our conversation today. Um, I this think is, we'll probably visit this again just because there's so many things. Oh my gosh. Um, when, I don't know, we might not do it right our next one or anything <laughs> just so we can have a breather from it and have people think and see if there's any comments of, you know, what people have to say or, you know, if we have anybody who's like, you know what, it makes sense or, oh my gosh, I totally disagree and that's, that's fine. Like, I don't know. I think we need to get back to that society of we can agree to disagree. Sure. And we can still be civil and we can still be listening. We don't have to be extreme. Sure. Yeah. And thank you all very much for listening. We will catch you all on another episode. Thank you all so much for your time. Bye. Bye.